All right. Well, good to see everybody this morning. I hope everyone is doing all right. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Caleb Maltby. It's been a long time since I've been here. I've been gone in Abilene for the last uh, three months or so, um, but it is good to be back in my hometown, be back at my home church. Um, it has been a while. So we are going to, uh, as a tradition, uh, we've been going through Sunday school uh, here. Uh, I know that we've taken break from Sunday school over the summer, um, but we are going to start a brand new series today. Um, and that series is uh, based on uh, this book that uh, we'll be going through, that I'll be taking us through, called He Shall Have Dominion by Kenneth Gentry. And uh, so today is going to be more of an introductory. We'll hit a few of the themes that he talks about a little bit in chapter one. Um, but there is, uh, I, I, whenever I, I do classes, because I've done many classes now, I teach for a living. And uh, I don't like to assign reading on the first day of class. Uh, so there is no reading assigned for today, but there will be a reading assigned, quote unquote, for next uh, week. So if you want to keep along with the pace that we'll be setting, uh, read chapter one. Uh, for next time, and we'll really dive deep into what he is trying to explain there in chapter one. Um, after that, we're not going to be doing a chapter a week. There, some of these chapters are really bulky and have a lot to say, so we'll keep it slow. We'll slow it down. I want to make sure that everyone um, is on pace and that we are uh, really digesting what it is that Gentry is saying. Um, and uh, so, yeah. But today will just be an introduction into what eschatology is, why is it important, and why are we teaching a class on post-millennial eschatology, um, because that for uh, for most churches, uh, even an OPC, uh, that is uh, somewhat abnormal. So at least let me defend myself and justify our class here today. But before we get started, let me read us a scripture and then I'll pray for us. Uh, this is Psalm 72. I'm going to read the whole psalm and then I'm going to pray for us as we start this morning. This is a psalm of Solomon. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. May, the fear you, may they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generation. May he be like the rain that falls the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteousness, righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him and all nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls the poor, and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon, and may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. 
Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Let us pray. Our Savior and our God, we come before you this morning as we approach uh, the topic of eschatology. Um, may uh, this be informative for us, may it be edifying to us, uh, may the things that we learn here uh, be something that we can apply to our lives, that we might live uh, better and holy lives toward you out of thankfulness and gratefulness for a salvation that we did not bring ourselves, but that you gave us so freely in the work and person of your dear son, Jesus Christ, and in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. And we pray to him even now as he sits on the throne. It's in his name we pray these things. Amen. All right. Well, why eschatology? Why eschatology? Perhaps you're even asking a more preliminary question. What is eschatology? Well, that is a very fancy word that we use in theological circles. Because in theological circles, we like to use fancy words so that people think we are oh so smart, but in fact, most of us are really not that smart. It sounds very smart, but it's not that complicated. Eschatology is the study of the last things. Eschaton is, comes from the, or it is a Greek word um, that means the end. Now, what is the end? What are we talking about? We're talking about the, the study of the last things or the study of the end. Well, the end can mean really two things in the English language and in the Greek language. This is very common. End can mean that something has a final point, right? That it ends. There is no more to it, right? When a story ends, when a book ends, you close the cover. There is no more of the book to be read. A terminus, to use a, uh, a more Latin phrase, uh, it terminates. It's done. But an end can also mean a purpose, a telos, right? You could say that we have an end, or something has an end. I have built this machine for an end. What is that end? That it produces, I don't know, cars or something like that, right? That is its end. Uh, it is not ending. We're not talking about the fact that the machine is, is gone and it's destroyed and it's not no more. We're talking about that purpose for which it was made, um, that we put all these pieces together uh, because it does something. That is the end point. Uh, with, for the reason why we learn engineering and we gather all the pieces and we put it all together. Um, so what are we talking about then when we're talking about eschatology? Are we talking about a terminus, something, a, a time when things terminate? Or are we talking about a, a telos, a purpose, uh, what things are, are pointed toward? Um, and I'd say there's, there is a bit of both in here. Uh, we are talking about a time when this age or, or when the things that we are experiencing now I do have some kind of terminus point. Uh, the, the world will not always be as it is. Uh, there will be no more sin. The world will no longer be corrupted. There will be no more curse. And so at that, in that sense, yes, we're talking about when this age terminates and the new age begins. But in another sense, we're not really talking about termination because, as I said, this age will end, but there will be an age to come, right? We're talking about something to come, and that age will have no terminus, right? There is no end in sight, uh, whenever Christ returns and all will be made right um, and all of uh, his enemies judged and all of the, the righteous raised and glorified, uh, all of that will have no end, right? We, we say that in our creed, right? If we are talking through the Nicene Creed, we say uh, that Christ shall come again and his kingdom shall have no end, right? And so we're not talking about, when we say the end of all things, we're saying the end of the things as we see them now. We're not talking about the end of all things, really, right? Uh, we're thinking forward to that new age. So a lot of this has to do more with purpose 
and tell us what is everything created for? Why did God create the world? Why did he create us? Why did he give us this book, this story? What is it all pointing toward? And in order to do that, if you want to know what the end of any good story is, what do you do? You start with chapter 1. So let's turn in our Bibles. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, we're going to be flipping through our Bibles quite a bit this morning. And let's go to Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to need readers, as is my custom. Genesis chapter 1, could someone read verses 26 through 31? Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. Yes, I'll read. <laughs> then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with its seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. This is the end of chapter 1. We have just seen, if you read, if you're reading along, this is the end of the account for God creates the world from day one to day two to day three. He creates the different, uh, the different things in the world. He brings the waters together, creates the dry land. He creates the birds of the air and the fish of the water and the things that creep along the ground. And then at the end of his creation, what is that last thing that he creates? He creates man. He creates humans. When we read this account, do we see something of the end for which God created man? And I'm using that second sense of the word end. Do we see that here in Genesis 1? And if so, what is that end? What is man's end? <laughs> to reflect God. Mm-hmm. 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 <laughs> <laughs> That's echoing even the, the language that the... Uh, the, uh, the divines used, right? And, and the, for what is the first question to uh, the Westminster Short of Catechism, right? The question is, what is the chief end of man? And what is the chief end of man? Enjoy him forever. Yes, exactly. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. But I think we even see something more specific here. How is Adam going to glorify God and enjoy him forever? to rule mm -hmm. and, take and take dominion yes that seems very clear um, from the outset as soon as Adam and Eve are created here he is to take dominion um, now when we say that do we mean that because we know God rules and he rules sovereignly does that mean that now Adam is to 
to rule as God rules? Is he to take God's place? No. So if that's not the case, then what do we mean by him ruling or him taking dominion? He's representing. He's representing, yes. Mm-hmm. There is a representation. Stewardship. He is stewarding, yes. Mm-hmm. He's a representative. He's stewarding. Steward is someone who right, doesn't actually own the property, right? If there's a very rich man and he owns an estate and owns millions of dollars, he's, but he might hire someone to steward his estate, right? And he says, I'm going away. Uh, I'm going on a vacation for a few years and I need to attend to these things over here. So I'm going to hire a steward. You don't own any of this, but I need you to look after it for me. So whenever we use that language, I think a lot of times we use words in, in Christianity and we use it so much we don't even think about it anymore. But when we talk about what does it mean to be a steward, we're saying, I don't actually own that which I'm looking after, right? I'm doing this for someone else because God is the true owner. So that's a, a really good way to look at it here as, as Adam, right? He is ruling. He's having dominion. But he's not doing this because he is the direct owner. He's doing this because uh, he has been commissioned by God as a steward. And then representative also as well that that this world that he's created, now Adam is to go in and be God's representative, be um, as a ruler to them. He is to mimic God in some ways, right? We, we call this uh, that he uh, has some attributes that are in common with God. He is to be holy as God is holy. He is to be just as God is just. He is to represent God in that way, um, though as a representative only, not as God himself. Because we'll see, of course, later in just these first few chapters, of course, we know what happens when man tries to be more than steward and more than representative. He tries to be like God. That is what Satan tempted him with, and that's what he tried to reach out his hand and to do. And to that end, let us turn to the second chapter of Genesis. And can someone just read alone, just read verse 9. We have these two trees created in the garden. And now let's go down a few verses and can someone read verses 15 through 17. So he gives these two trees, and then he gives this command, this, this test, right? And we talk about this all the time when we're talking about salvation, and we're talking about the covenants, and we're seeing the covenant of works uh, being uh, initiated here, uh, which we know, of course, Adam will, uh, will fail. But I, I don't bring this up uh, to, uh, to kind of sidetrack us at all, because there is a point to this as we're talking about eschatology. Right? We really need to understand the beginning of the story to also understand the end of the story. Um, any good story. A story, I think a lot of times we don't, we don't think about this unless we're sitting down to try to craft a story or write a story. A story is not just a series of events, right? If you just have a series of events, that's an account. Um, that is not a story. A story has a beginning, and the beginning has the, the seeds or the, the, the inklings or images of the end in that beginning, right? They say a, a, good, a good story, um, the, the beginning and the end act like mirrors of each other. 
Um, especially if, if you're if you like mystery novels or something like that. It's almost like you should have seen the end coming before the end actually got there. We should have known that's where we were going. And a lot of times a, a good mystery novel or a good mystery that you're watching, right, uh, you're kicking yourself because you're like, oh, I should have seen that coming. I should. There was all these hints all the way along in the beginning. It was it was right there. Uh, and then you get there, and then then you they, there was a surprise at the end. Uh, of course, it wasn't really a surprise, right? The, the author was was dropping those hints all along. And the same here. Not that this is a a mystery in that sense, right? But the, even the word mystery is used throughout Scripture. That there is there is something that is revealed, but it was not something that was revealed that we came out of nowhere. It wasn't like. Uh, God had this hidden the whole time and we could have never known and then suddenly said, oh, well, I've, I've been keeping this back from you. No, he, there were things that were pointing us in this direction and he made it more and more clear. And then once we get to Christ, we see so much is made clear and the Old Testament really starts to, to make sense. Why were the prophets saying these things? Why were the psalmists writing about this? Why, why, why did God say someone would crush the head of the serpent? What on earth did that mean? And then we see in Christ, that's what it meant. Now we see these trees. We see this covenant that God puts forward. Now let's turn to the end. Let's turn to Revelation. Let's turn to Revelation 22. <coughs> Revelation 22, if someone could read verses 1 through 4. Or 1 through 5. Read 1 through 5. river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no light there. They need no, no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Thank you. We see at least three things that are already echoed from the passages we just read in Genesis. One is a pretty big, obvious image that's similar from Genesis. And what is that? Light, yeah. Well, there's a, a thing that is mentioned here. What's the tree? Yes, the tree of life. The tree of life reappears. It was in Genesis. We know that, that Adam had in the garden the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Which did he take from? Good and evil. Good and evil. Yes, he took from the knowledge of good and evil. And God actually says after the curse, we are going to take him out of the garden lest he reach out his hand and take from the tree of life. Because now he is cursed. Now he is in rebellion against God. But here, the tree of life is there. So something about the end is tying us back to the beginning, to the way things should have gone. And now we're seeing that replayed here. Another one that maybe is less obvious because we didn't read, read those verses explicitly, but right before we talk about those trees, there are rivers that are coming out of the garden. There are four rivers. And what do we see here in the New Jerusalem? This is the New Jerusalem, by the way, that we haven't, the verse didn't mention that explicitly. Um, but it talks about that before and after this and calls it the New Jerusalem. 
there are rivers coming out of the New Jerusalem as well. But in that last verse, chapter, or verse 5 that we just read, something about man, what do we see there that's mimicking or echoing Genesis? What's man doing? The part about reigning. He's reigning. He, is, he has taken dominion. He is reigning. Now we know who is, who is really reigning. Who's at the head? God. God. Yes, and more, more namely, Christ. Christ. Yes, right, the Lamb, right? We see Christ is sitting upon his throne. He is over all things. But it says then, it also then says that the, son, or the, the servants of this Lamb, the servants of God, they are reigning as well. Man is doing that which he was created to do in Genesis. So this is this, this restorative work that we're seeing here in Revelation 22. It's calling us back to Genesis and as we start to, we could spend hours and hours and hours just looking through Genesis 1 through 3 and Revelation 20 through 22, right? Just the last three and the first three chapters of the Bible. And there's so much here, so many connective things. And why is this important? Because all the stuff in the middle doesn't make sense unless you make sense of the way it begins and the way it ends. Because you're going to start interpreting why things are happening the way they're happening in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, all of these other things you interpret by way of the way that you interpret how did God start things and how is he ending them. So that's why eschatology is so important. If you have one eschatological position versus another eschatological position, you're going to interpret the stuff in the middle differently. You're going to say, well, this is pointing toward this instead of this. Or we, we do these things instead of those things. And so it matters. Now... Whenever we talk about that stuff in the middle, there are two things that we could be referring to, right? In the Bible, it's very clear. There are three chapters on the end. There are three chapters in the beginning. We're talking about all those chapters in the middle, right? We're talking about the ways in which God uh, created the world, the ways in which Adam sinned and fell into sin as he rebelled against God, and then the way that God promised a Redeemer, right? In Genesis 3, uh, 15, he says that he promises one who will come and crush the head of the serpent, and then all throughout the Old Testament we're going chapter by chapter, book by book, and we're wondering, when is the seed of the woman coming? And we see again and again, is it going to be Noah? He seems to be saving people. Oh, no, it's not Noah because he gets drunk and he lies out flat and gets naked in front of his sons and all these terrible, crazy things. And we're like, nope, it can't be him. And then we go, is it, is it Moses? Well, Moses, well, he, he, he loses his temp temper and he, he kills someone in, in anger and then he, he strikes a rock when God told him not to and he loses his temper with the people. No, it probably, probably can't be Moses. Is it is it David? Well, well, David seems to be a great king, and he seems to be saving his people. And then, well, but then he chooses not to go out to battle to protect his people. And then he sleeps with someone who's not his wife and then kills that person's husband. And no, it's probably not going to be David. And so we're going forward and forward and forward. And then we get to Christ. And Christ is the one who is fulfilling this story. And the story has been pointing to him all along. But when Christ comes... He comes in his first advent, right? Advent just comes from the Latin to come, right? He, he came. He arrived. Christ came the first time, and he fulfilled all these things. He is uh, all these covenants. There are promises made not only to Adam, not only to Noah, not only to Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or David. He fulfilled all of those, right? We talk about one of the biggest ones I think people, people miss, right? God, what does God promise to David? God promises that his seed will be on the throne eternally. If that is true, well, if you look just at 
Israel isolated in the Old Testament as if that's something where he's talking about that line, well, that then God failed. God's promise failed there because uh, David's line ended, right? We get to the New Testament and David's sons are not on the throne. Israel has been exiled. They've been brought back from exile, but they are now oppressed. They were oppressed by the Greeks with Alexander. Now they're oppressed by the Romans. There is no king in Israel, well, except for a king named Herod, but he's Roman anyways. There is no son of David. So if you look at it from that perspective, then, then God's promise seems to have failed. But when you remember that, that Christ is not only a spiritual son of David, he is literally the son of David, and now he sits enthroned, and his reign has no end. Well, then that begins to make sense. There is someone reigning, and that reign is eternal. A son of David will indeed sit the throne forever, and that reign shall not end. So it matters how, how we look at the Bible, all those things in the middle. There are many, many questions that I put here that you would answer differently if you, had, if, uh, if you approached eschatology in different ways, right? Why did God choose particular people, a particular people in the Old Testament? But then why did he extend his plan of salvation to the world, to all the nations, to in the New Testament? Or is, is this perhaps the way to look at it at all? Is this the way that we should be looking at Old and New Testaments? Why does the church start in Jerusalem and go out? Why was Jesus, uh, why was Jesus promised to thousands or and for thousands of generations before coming to earth? Why was the fullness of time, time thousands of years after the garden? What is the point of promising a land of Canaan to the Israelites? Why have a sacrificial system? All of these questions will have a different flavor. I'm not saying that if you have one eschatological position or another that you'll have absolutely different answers, but they at least influence the way we begin to think through those questions. But when I say the stuff in the middle, how we interpret the stuff in the middle depends upon the way we view the beginning and the end. That's true for the Bible. But when we look at Revelation 22, has Revelation 22 occurred yet? Has New Jerusalem come down yet? No, we'll talk about, we're not talking about preterism yet. We're not talking about all that yet. Revelation 22 has not happened, right? There is still sin, right? The world is still being conquered in, in the language that we'll use later. So that means that history is also the stuff in the middle, right? When we're talking about what's in between Genesis 3 and Revelation 22, we're not just talking about those things which are explicitly mentioned in Scripture, and those things are vitally important. This is the Word of God. But we're also talking about how do you view history? How do you view what's going on in time and in space? Because if you have one view, you're going to view things very differently than in another. Why do bad things happen? Why were there these massive genocide? Why were, are there times of great flourishing and great hope? Why do we see empires raised? Why do we see people prospering and having abundance? And then why do we see people living in, in decadence and living in their sin? All these questions are answered by the Bible, and we have to come to the Bible and then come to history and say, how, how do I interpret what's going on? What is God doing now in this age in history? Now, I wrote for us, because they, they have kind of Christian equivalents, but they were kind of really, and I teach this to my kids when I go through history, there are three ways that we can view history from uh, when we're not thinking about it religiously, basically the ways that the non-believers approach history. There are three ways in which they really do that. The first, perhaps the most popular, is prog progressivism. That history progresses. That man 
he comes onto the scene. Now they'll, they'll even stretch this back, right? They'll say, well, there was millions and millions of years and, and there were, were single-celled organisms and they progressed. Just fun fact, that could not have been possible without the, the 19th century or the 1800s when people were already in this progressive mindset that things are progressing, progressing, progressing. Therefore, even in biology, for millions of years, things must have been progressing, progressing, progressing. And this was the evolutionary view, right? Darwin's not the first person who is an evolutionist. He just takes it to biology and he applies it. This is the predominant view of history, that things get better over time because of what man does, right? So in the Middle Ages, things were backwards. Things were terrible. They were oppressed by religion. They were dumb because they, they submitted to the church and there wasn't technology. And so there was just... Uh, terrible things going on. People were dying all the time. The Black Death came and killed everybody. But now, now we have been enlightened. We have intelligence. We have created technology. We have saved everybody by creating hospitals on every corner. And uh, there is a progress being made. This is the way most people view history. Now, there, of course, they'll admit, no one's going to say that it's a straight line up. Everyone admits the ups and downs. But that is, I would say, the predominant view in secular culture. There is the opposite view, and sometimes we see this in our culture, and that is the regressive view, right? The things were so great at the beginning, and then man came on the scene, and man made things worse and worse and worse and worse. And all this technology, all of these things, where a lot of this kind of comes out in a more environmental kind of, uh, environmentalist kind of outlook, right? That we've come on to the planet, we're destroying it, and... And everything is getting worse and worse and worse. And, and you see this in the apocalyptic movies. If, if man is left to do all of these things, then by man's end, it's just going to be a nuclear apocalypse. We're going to blow each other up. And the, the planet's going to be this desolate, terrible place. Right? Lots of, lots of movies and TV shows depict it that way. So you can look at it going up, or you can look at it going down. Or you can take what I kind of just call the flat view. Right? You can just say, well, everything is basically the same. There's good... Good things in every age, there's bad things in every age, um, and, and why, why glorify any one age? Why try to, to have rose-colored glasses for any one age? Uh, it is what it is. Uh, those people tend to, to when you talk to them, uh, they will never really allow you to say, to aspire to any age, right? You could say, oh, well, I think they, like, uh, that really good things were happening in the, uh, in the 1700s and, and, and all of that. Uh, as, as the American Revolution was happening and there was a lot of Christian influence, they would say, oh, no, 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 no. Stop trying to paint, you, paint me with your rose-colored glasses. Uh, it is what it is. There were terrible people back then. There were still homeless people back then. There were still orphans back then. There were still abortions back then. It, all, it happened just because they didn't write about it doesn't mean it didn't happen. There's bad. There's good. Stop trying to deceive yourself. That's just kind of this flat view, right? And it's all... Just that way. Now, I'd argue that as we go now to look at the three different views, which I am realizing we don't have much time to look at the views, <laughs> um, that we're going to see a Christian way of approaching the history in those three different ways. Now, what we're talking about when we talk about these three views, they tend to go along with a millennium. We're talking about the millennium. Now, what is the millennium? Well, let's turn to Revelation 20 to find out what the millennium is. Because this is what's in question. This is where the debate happens. And as you know, I never stand down from a good debate. I love debating. So, 
But let's read Revelation 20, starting in verse 1. Can someone read 1 through 8? I can read it. <laughs> then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He said, he's, he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has no, who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. Awesome. Thank you. There's a lot here, and we're going to be revisiting this chapter again and again as we go through the book, because there are three views, and they specifically are talking about how do you interpret this passage, this thousand years that's mentioned, uh, I believe, about four or five times here. There is pre-millennial view. When we say pre-millennial, that means, of course, before the millennium. What we're saying is that Christ returns before these things that are being described here, these thousand years, whether that thousand years be, be literal or not, uh, Christ returns and then the millennium will happen. And these good things that happen under the reign of Christ happen then. There is the post-millennial view. This is the opposite of that. This is that there is a millennium and that our good things are happening in that millennium, that Christ is reigning in that millennium, and that there is then he comes to earth after that millennium. And then there is all mill, all millennialism, which is a stripe of post mill. They also believe that Christ comes after the millennium, but that there is a difference in the way that they view how things are going. The post millennial and the all millennial view are very similar, but have some key and maybe more nuanced disagreements about the trajectory of the way things are going. The post millennial says if there's a millennium and good things are happening, then there is a trajectory, because if that millennium, the post mill, disagrees with the pre-mill. And the pre-mill says, Christ comes and then there's a millennium. If Christ comes and then millennium's after that, well, then all these good things that are being described, well, that's, that's perfection, right? That's, that's it. There is no more sin. And so then we're talking about uh, Christ having returned already. But the post-mill has, has to deal with the, the uh, accusation that if we're saying that the millennium happens before Christ's return, well, there's, there's sin going on still before Christ's return. There is still corruption in the world. Um, so what, what do we mean by the fact that there is a, millennial, um, a millennium now? And what we mean by that is that there is a upward trajectory, that Christ is reigning now. It is the millennium now, 
but there is an upward trajectory there. The Amil says, I don't know if that's provable from scripture, and he says, he takes, I guess, what we call more of that flat view, right? He says that the church is growing, yes, we're not denying that the church is growing. And I'm going to try to be very, very honest uh, uh, to the, the Amil brother here. Um, and so if you, if you read some of the, the work in here, sometimes he's not, he, sometimes he takes a more accu accusatory tone. I'm going to try to be very fair, be very uh, just to his position. The, the Amil does believe the church is growing, right? But the, the Amil says, as good grows, as it grows, so does evil. Whereas the post-mill essentially kind of views it more as a, a zero-sum game. Every, every battle is a victory for one side and a, a, a destruction of the other in some sense. And therefore, if goodness grew, if the church grew, well, that means the kingdom of darkness uh, shrank in that situation as well. And so things are getting progressively better. We're not saying that there aren't ups and downs. All of views are going to say that there are ups and there are downs. There are good times and there are bad times. Uh, but where is it, where is it going? Uh, so really, it's very similar to how we talked about those three views of the seculars take of the world, right? Is it progressive now? This is something we're going to have to go through the whole class to show that we're not, when we're talking about post-millennialism, we're not talking about secular progressivism. And our all-mill and, and, and pre-mill brothers, a lot of the times when they give us uh, accusations uh, toward our end, critiques of our view, they're going to try to relate those two, right? Um, and so, two, we're not saying that just because the all-mill has a more flat view, we're not saying you have the same view as the, uh, as the secularist. This is just a way of at least looking at history in a helpful way to categorize this in our minds as we're trying to uh, think through the ways in which history is viewed, the way in which the scriptures are viewed. So that all-mill has more of a flat view. The pre-mill has more of a descending view, right? If Christ is not reigning now at all, well, in all these terrible things that are mentioned in Revelation, all these terrible things that are mentioned in Thessalonians and in the Gospels, and there's plenty of verses and passages we'll get to, um, that those things must, it is the sin of man, right? We know the total depravity of man. We're good Calvinists. We know that everyone is, is totally depraved. Man is corrupt in his entire being. And so, of course, things are just going to get worse and worse and worse and worse. And then Christ will return and he'll rescue us. That's the more pre-mill position, right? Amil is Christ will return. There will be evil. Evil is going to keep rising to meet uh, good. And then Christ will return. And then the post-mill says, no, we're on an upward trajectory that good is winning, and that when Christ returns, that doesn't mean that when Christ returns, there will be no more, uh, there won't be sinners here. It just means that the church will have grown and progressed forward, and that they, it would have gone out, and the nations are beginning to be gathered in as the strong man is bound. So, I've given us those views. I'm not going to defend postmillennialism today, mainly because there's not enough time. <laughs> but that's really what the church, that the class is going to be about, right? I'm going to be defending the postmillennial position. I'm going to be articulating even more, some more specific views as to what pre-mills and all-mills believe. We didn't even talk about dispensationalism, um, which is a whole different uh, way of viewing. They would, they would technically be premillennial as well, um, but that is another real, really category. There's premillennial, what might be called historic premillennial. That is what most people kind of believed about the millennium if they believed before Christ came before it, uh, before dispensationalism occurs, which is uh, fairly new, right? It comes out in the 1800s, really uh, mid to late 1800s, really takes off 1900s. Um, and so, uh, but that's when we're talking about within what we would call the reform camp. Uh, in reform circles, those, those three historic premillennialism 
and then amillennialism and postmillennialism. Those are the three that we're going to be comparing, and uh, I'll be trying to defend postmillennialism for you. I hope that I will be able to succeed. I may not. That's okay. We're not here to tell you you must believe this thing. If you're going to believe something about eschatology, if you're going to believe anything, you must be persuaded by the scriptures, right? We do not, if you are an optimistic person, that doesn't mean you should just become post-mill. If you're a pessimistic person, that doesn't mean you should just become pre-mill. That is not how this works. We should, we should believe what the scriptures say, and we should be persuaded by the word of God and the spirit working in us as we approach the word of God, as he speaks by the word of God. So I'm not here to say, you must take this position, and if you don't, you're stupid. No, I'm just going to try to present to you why I believe the word of God is pointing toward this view. And of course, we have six minutes left. If we go over, that's a little bit. Uh, we'll, we'll, Carl's here to rein me in. But this is your time to ask me any question that is on your mind. I open the floor. <laughs> yes. I have not. So I, I grew up not thinking about it a whole lot. Um, I guess growing up, I kind of defaulted to what most of the culture defaults to, which is dispensationalism. Um, and uh, just because I had heard people talk about uh, the, what's that book, the Left Behind series, all that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, I, I, I grew up kind of believing in the tribulation just because I don't, we just didn't talk about it very much. But then um, when I started to, to study... Uh, I think this is actually kind of a very similar uh, story to a lot of people. When I started to study it, um, I kind of defaulted to amillennialism, right? Amillennialism is just that, again, it's that flat view. It's like, well, sure, yeah, I see evil, right? I look at the 20th century. Lots of bad things happen in the 20th century, but there's a lot of good things that came out of the 20th century. So, yeah, I guess I'm, I guess I'm all mill. Um, but then when I really started to dig deeper and deeper, um, and there were some passages uh, that we, we didn't get to today, but some passages like Psalm 72 that I read, Psalm 2, Psalm 110, the way that it speaks of Christ coming, um, Ezekiel talking about the waters coming out of the temple, and 1 Corinthians talking about enemies being uh, gradually but progressively put under the feet of Christ, and that last being death. I, I wrestled with that passage in 1 Corinthians over and over again, and I said, I can't, I don't know if I can be all known and, and really interpret that text rightly anymore. Um, so no, I've not always been post millennial. It's been a <laughs> it's been a journey. Yes. Would you place it uh, the theology eschatology your view? Um, is it the secondary issue, tertiary issue? I would say, oh, it's definitely when we're talking about this, it's definitely a. I I don't like necessarily those terms just because I don't want to negate its importance. Right, it is important, but I would I would if I was going to have to choose one, I would say probably very tertiary or secondary. It's not, most certainly not a, a salvation critical issue or anything like that. Um, it is, uh, this is something that, that really very devoted, um, reformed Christian men uh, argue in good faith with one another in. Um, and so have many, many good Christian brothers on the other sides of these debates. Um, so, but I, I, I don't want to negate its importance because it does, Flavor the way which not only we look at the rest of Scripture, but the way we live our lives um, as Christians in the real world. Um, so, but yeah, does that answer the, your question? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. Sorry, ask a theologian a question, and he's not going to just give you a one-word answer. That's. <laughs> so I, I kind of have a 
question? That's a question. <laughs> um, multiple times people have asked me, or not even asked, but just started saying things about, oh, I think it's the end times mm -hmm. right now. And I've, I always notice that every generation thinks that. But the one thing, even though I'm not well versed on the topic, the one thing that really stands out to me is that when Jesus left, he said, make disciples of all nations. Mm -hmm. And is that part of what is supposed to be fulfilled to the best of our sinful ability before his second return? We should expect to see whole nations being disciples, not just individuals within nations. Is that right? Yes, I would, I would agree with, with that. There is a... Um... There's different views on that, but Matthew Henry, I think, had a, a really good thing to say about Matthew 28, which is that famous, what we call the, the Great Commission, right? Um, he, he starts before he says that. He says, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given over to me, which I would point to as, as the start of his reign, right? That, that is the start of uh, the millennium. The millennium's happening. Um, and then he says, go baptize uh, and disciple all nations. Matthew Henry says, what does that mean? That means the Christianizing to the utmost of every single tribe of time, right? Now, does that mean that there's like all individuals within a nation or all individuals within a tribe are Christian? Uh, no, that, that, that we don't think that's going to happen, but we do think that there's a significant amount of those people that will come to Christ and that there is something in, in the air almost that you could, that there are some things happening. When there's churches on every corner, um, there's a natural outworking to that. Um, that affects the culture. Um, we don't adopt Christianity uh, so that, that uh, disease might go away, but look at what has happened in the West because Christians had a Christian approach to science and a Christian approach to uh, the, the poor and the needy and those that were suffering from these diseases, uh, and they learned science because they believed in an ordered God, and then they took that science and applied it to helping those that needed help that were in uh, Diseases, right? The reason why we call hospitals hospitals is because it were it was Christian orders and Christian uh, design to have a place that was hospitable to people who were sick when no one else was being hospitable. That's why we call them hospitals. Um, because if someone was sick on the road, you wouldn't just let them in your house lest your whole family be infected with what they were they had. But Christians began to create hospitals. So that is just one way in which. A nation begins to change because of the church that is in the nation. Um, and so, uh, and, and just the way that God deals, especially in the Old Testament, but it's not absent from the new. And I think a lot of times we just see the new as this isolated thing, but when you take it in context, God does deal with individuals, but he also deals with nations. He deals with groups of people. Um, he deals with families, right? Um, uh, and, and this church especially, we talk about it all the time. Why do we baptize babies? Uh, because God deals covenantally with households, not just individuals. Um, a church is not just a bunch of individuals coming together, it's it households coming together. Um, and so uh, whenever we're talking about God redeeming things, yeah, I think that a, a huge part of that is going to be God's not just redeeming individuals. There is a redemption work, though perhaps a different restorative thing happening with a nation uh, or with a church or with a family, uh, with groups of people. So. Mm -hmm. All right, I'm getting the it's time. <laughs> we, we have 30 minutes before Sunday school. We can talk uh, amongst ourselves, and I'm happy to answer any questions uh, afterward as well.
Um, but let us close our time together. Uh, Justin, would you pray for us? This Absolutely. Really... Lord, thank you for the day. Thank you for the rain yesterday. It was uh, excellent. Thank you for your blessings in that. Thank you for Caleb and his time and his devotion and his gift of teaching, Lord, that he's uh, blessing us and sharing with us all these good things. Pray that your hand will be upon him. Pray that your uh, spirit will work on us and help us to learn about all these things and to edify and build each other up and build up our communities and our culture. And we ask that you would uh, bless Pastor Miller, help us to uh, receive his message this morning. We ask all these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.